The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Doctor's Lounge. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on America's Web Radio. And today we're going to talk a little bit about serendipity. Now, I was going to have the motivational speaker, Inky Johnson, on the show. That's what I was prepared for. I was really excited to talk about it. But unfortunately, he's had a uh, personal issue come up, and so he's not going to be able to make it on the show today. And so we're going to switch gears on the fly. I'm going to try and incorporate a little bit about uh, Inky Johnson and his motivational speaking and try and tie that together with free market healthcare. So bear with me today as I try to muddle through this one. I want to give you guys a good show. Now, for those of you who who don't know who Inky Johnson is, he was um, a Tennessee football player, a defensive back, and he was scheduled to be a first-round draft pick in the NFL back in 2006. And in a savage play he was involved in making a tackle, he actually sustained a severe brachial plexus injury to his right upper extremity. Uh, tore his subclavian artery or vein, I believe, almost died, but he lost the use of his right arm and uh, without without uh, you know understandably his NFL career f- fell through. He was never drafted into the NFL, but he didn't quit on his life. He went on to become one of the great motivational speakers of our time, and you know I was thinking about all of us need some place to turn. Uh, to keep us motivated, to keep us in a place where we keep moving forward. And I was thinking in my own case, I go to church once a week. It's important for me to hear that this world and the things going on, it's not about me, but it's what God wants for me. And another place that I go to is Inky Johnson because he's been through so much and he really is uh, very special Uh, in the way he took his disability and turned it into this motivational speaking career, and he literally touches millions of lives. I'm sorry he can't be here today, but we will have him on the show down the road. One of the things I was thinking about uh, when I was uh, considering doing this show about moving forward, about never quitting, about staying positive, about chasing your dreams, what what is – these are all virtues that we have – What's the most important virtue? And the, the most import, important virtue, I believe, is courage. Without courage, it's impossible to practice any of the other virtues consistently. And the Maya Angelou is an American poet and civil rights activist who said this very eloquently. Courage is the most important of all virtues because without courage, you can't practice any of the other virtues consistently. And I think that's really well said. I was scrolling through my Google on all the different great quotes on virtues, and they're essentially that, that courage is really the base the base virtue. That's the one that allows us to engage in all of the other virtues, and it's those virtues that make us happy and productive citizens. And I feel that this is important in relating to our underlying theme on this show, which is the doctor-patient relationship in free market medicine versus socialized medicine. 
We're always talking about the horrors of socialized medicine, and sadly in this country, we keep moving closer and closer to a more government-controlled, top-down, one-size-fits-all medical program. And as a result, we're losing the important aspects of the doctor-patient relationship. Now, when I think about all of the things that go into the doctor-patient relationship, I can't get there without first reflecting on who I am as a person and what led me to become a doctor and what inspired me and made me think and act the way that I do, which I believe helps me interact with my patients in a positive way and establish an important doctor-patient relationship. And the first thing I would say is that I'm a unique individual. And that is an important thing to understand. I am a unique individual, which means I can offer certain things to my patients that no other person on this planet can offer. But it also means there are things that I can't offer to every patient. I am not the right doctor for every person. My value set, the way I think, the way I act, it doesn't work for every single patient, which is why it is so important to allow differences of opinion in the medical field. We need doctors who see things differently, who have different experiences. And then what we need are patients to have the ability to seek out those doctors who can present medical options and give advice that's that's proper and that's right and that's useful to each individual patient. Now, this doesn't happen in a socialized medicine program, when you have a top-down, government-run, best practices, one-size-fits-all type of medical system, there is no room for nuance. There's no room for, for differences of a thought. And what happens is you see your healthcare decisions devolve into this one-size-fits-all. And usually what it is, it ends up being something that's really rudimentary for the patient and very costly to the system because as the socialized medicine grows, the bureaucracy grows, you get a whole bunch of people filling that bureaucracy that need to be paid. And as a result, the care on the back end goes away and the quality of the care goes away. And the reason is, is because there's no accountability. What are you going to do? In my world right now, if I have a patient who doesn't like me and doesn't like the care that I'm giving, they're free to go somewhere else. But in a socialized medicine program, uh, you don't have that ability. So when you see that doctor and that doctor gives you advice that you don't agree with or that you don't want to accept or that you're worried isn't, isn't accurate, you don't really have the option to go to anybody else. That's the end of the line. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that uh, in my own personal experience because um, I've I've seen what it looks like in a socialized medicine situation. I've talked about it on this show many times. The VA, to me, is a, a government-run medical system. It's as close as we have to socialized medicine. And any doctor who's rotated through the VA will tell you that the problems with the bureaucracy are insurmountable and that the quality of health care there is, is the worst that we have to offer in this country. Now... 
one of the things I was going to talk about with Inky about serendipity, which, by the way, serendipity with Inky Johnson is the name of his podcast, and you guys should all go check it out on any of uh, the platforms that uh, have podcasting. It's amazing. He has great people on there that talk about their stories and one of the things that you'll see as an underlying theme is that no successful person has a smooth road to success. There's always trial and tribulation. There's always setbacks. But it's the people who continue to move forward, who don't quit, who pick themselves up failure after failure that eventually achieve success. And one of the things that Enki will talk about all the time is that the road that you set out for yourself is almost never the road that you're going to follow. God has a different plan for you, and you need to listen and and see what he has in store for you. Now, for me, I grew up, and I've, I've probably shared this on the show before, but it's important. I thought I was going to be the next Pele. Um, I was a good soccer player when I was a kid, um, and I was uh, in 1983. I was the Hawaii State Player of the Year. I got uh, recruited to go to UCLA, which at the time was the number one um, soccer program in the country. And at the time, it seemed like everything was falling into place. Uh, that uh, my pro career was uh, all set in stone. And here I am, you know, 17, 18 years old, believing that my destiny was to be a professional soccer player. And at the time, and with that perspective, it's the only thing I ever knew. I often say at that time when I used to talk to people, I wasn't Scott Barber, I was Scott the soccer player. That was who I was. And I can remember flying on the plane from Hawaii to UCLA and and Los Angeles thinking to myself, I wonder if I'm going to see any players who are as good as me. (laughs) Well, things as things turned out, not only did I see players who were as good as me, I almost didn't see any players who weren't better than me. Uh, It was a fantastic program. I learned the hard lesson from going from a big fish in a small pool to being a small fish or whatever to being a small fish in a small pool, um, it was a shocker to me to all of a sudden, when my entire life was going in one direction, to all of a sudden get punched in the face and realize that all the dreams that I had set for myself were not going to become true. And my identity as a person at the time was Scott the soccer player, and that all of a sudden uh, was gone. And so what was I going to do? Now, Fortunately for me, I had a father who uh, years before had asked me the question what I was going to be when I grew up. And, of course, I said back to him, well, I'm going to be a professional soccer player, obviously. And my father sort of laughed and chuckled. And he said, "Okay, well, in case you uh, get injured, he, he didn't take my dream away from me. He didn't take my hope away from me. He just said, in case I was injured or once my pro soccer career is going uh, to end, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? And I said, well, I don't know. And he said, well, you ought to think about it. There are a lot of things to consider. Um, how much? How many hours do you want to work? How much money do you want to make? Do you want summers off? Do you want to work indoors or outdoors? Do you want to work with your hands? Do you want to work behind a desk? And I remember thinking to myself, wow, that is a lot of stuff to consider. And... Um, So as I started thinking about things at my high school, we used to have an athletic training program, which was really high quality. It was really a fantastic experience back in those days. Uh, The uh, 
University of Hawaii and our trainer, Mr. Howard, at Punahou School, uh, were the only certified trainers on the island. And so when the Pro Bowl and the Hula Bowl came into town, uh, we provided the training services to those athletes. And I can remember as I went through Mr. Howard's athletic training program, the first two classes, two years were in the classroom and then the third year you actually got to be in the training room taping athletes and I can remember back in the day having the opportunity to tape Earl Campbell's ankle, uh, Mark Spitz, um, Willie Stargell. Uh, They used to also have a competition back in those days where the winner of the Super Bowl and the winner of the World Series would compete in sort of swimming and track and tug of war and all these sorts of things. It's sort of a fun thing. They used to have it on a weekend on on all the uh, sports networks back in the day and so when those athletes would come into town we also uh, got to take care of them and it was really a great exposure to uh, sports medicine and athletics and so it was a normal extrapolation for me if I'm not going to be a pro athlete I still wanted to be around sports and so I thought to myself well let me go into this athletic training thing and I started asking around uh, what's the highest level of sort of being an athletic trainer and somebody once said to me well it's being a sports medicine doctor And so I thought, okay, well, I guess I'll go to medical school and I'll do this uh, sports medicine doctor thing. So fast forward, I'm here at UCLA. Uh, I'm thinking I don't need to employ the being a sports medicine doctor because I'm going to be a pro soccer player. And then suddenly it uh, becomes painfully obvious that um, being a professional soccer player is not in my destiny. And so I uh, ended up transferring from UCLA to UC Berkeley. And my plan was I was going to go from the number one team in the nation to the number eight team in the nation. And, you know, hopefully that that just slight decrease in the quality of uh, competition would allow me to start and, and maybe resurrect my career. And for a lot of reasons that we'll skip today, that didn't work out. And so <clears throat> I started applying to medical school. Now, uh, in those days, uh, you know, I don't think parents were quite the way they are today. I, I think it's a real disservice that we do to our children. You know, if you don't get a A on your fourth grade, you know, math test, your life is over. And, you know, we, we standardize test these kids to, to death. And, you know, children all learn in different ways and at different rates. And it doesn't mean uh, one person is going to be more successful than another. It really doesn't even mean that one person who does well on standardized tests is going to be successful compared to another. And um, again, this is a story for another day. But the, the point is, I didn't have a lot of pressure on me to to really achieve academically. And I, I don't mean it in a bad way, but I, I just was under the impression that if you got B's, uh, you know, you'd be, you'd be okay in life. And so I, I sort of um, played to that. When I was in high school, I, you know, worked to get B's. I was fortunate to get into top universities because of athletics. Um, but when I got into uh, school, I sort of was concerned about sports. I mean, I was playing soccer. I eventually played rugby at UC Berkeley. And so I was, you know, I was, I would consider a well-rounded person. I had a lot of activities. I didn't work as hard as I could academically, and I ended up getting B's. And my thinking was I would get into medical school, uh, maybe not Harvard, but I would get in somewhere. Well, I learned really quickly that medical school is not the same thing as college. There is not a medical school for for um, people who are sort of 
underachievers or a different level. It's very difficult, and it really um, takes top performance uh, to get into medical school. So I know I've shared this before on this podcast. I took my initial medical college admissions test, and on the reading comprehension, I got a 2 out of 15, which I was later told by uh, one of the uh, doctors at Georgetown University that people who don't speak English can do better than a 2. And it was such a poor performance that I thought I must have done something wrong on the test. I don't know if many of you are probably not old enough, but back in the old days when we used to take standardized tests, we would fill in these little bubbles uh, with you know answers A through E. You'd take a number two pencil and you'd scribble in this bubble. If you got off, you know you actually answered number two uh, when you were supposed to be answering number one. Then all of your answers down the line. Uh, would be off and you'd get everything wrong. And I kind of felt like that's what I must have done because, you know, I know how to read. I'd been through uh, high school and college and I, you know, I didn't crush it, but I didn't flunk out either. And so I really thought to myself that this was unusual. And so uh, I did not get into medical school that first time. And so I ended up taking the medical college admissions test a second time. And I really studied. Uh, back in those days, I was working three jobs as a fitness trainer, and I had two bartender jobs, which, by the way, I didn't feel like I was working three jobs. It's just I needed to have these three jobs in order to make the money to pay my bills. I was also uh, playing uh, rugby at the time. And every day after work, I would go to Stanley Kaplan, and I would spend probably four to six hours studying to get into medical school. And I remember feeling like I was just um, living my day. I didn't feel like I was uh, put upon. I didn't feel like, you know, God had forsaken me. It was, I was driven to do this. It was inside me. I wanted to be a doctor. Uh, and so I, I did it. Now, I took the medical college admissions test for a second time. And this time I didn't get a two on the reading comprehension. I got a five. And I also got a five on another section called data analysis that required a lot of reading. And I remember at this point thinking to myself, this is really um, this is really difficult for me to understand. I don't I can't do this. Why is this? And um, I was a bit frustrated. I applied to medical school. I still didn't get in. So I was looking for advice. My parents were living in Northern Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. at the time. And so while I was there as part of my efforts to get into medical school, I was gathering information. And so I made appointments to visit with the uh, people who worked at Georgetown University and others. And while I was at Georgetown University speaking to uh, one of the doctors there, I presented my information and I was asking questions. And she immediately said to me, that I had a reading disability. And I thought to myself, you've known me for five minutes. Uh, how could you know I have a reading disability? And she goes, you got a two in the reading comprehension. People who don't even speak English can do better than a two. And then you did well in the sciences. The only explanation for that is having a reading disability. And I thought to myself, well, what's the difference between having a reading disability and just not being smart enough to be a doctor? And she said, it's not that you can't understand complicated issues, you just have a processing problem. And so she suggested that I go back to uh, my UC Berkeley and seek out the Disabled Students Union, which I did. And I ended up getting hooked up with some people and they set me up with uh, a testing service. 
And this was designed to diagnose my reading comprehension. And so I went in for a two-day test, and they did all sorts of tests um, that took two days. I remember one of these tests, they showed me all these cards of pictures, and it would be something like the doorknob was on the wall instead of on the door, and you were supposed to pick up that error. And I remember not picking up a lot of these errors, and um, I just couldn't believe that my brain was not seeing this. And so it turns out that I had this horrendous reading disability, and so much so that the person who was conducting the test was stunned that I got this far in my life uh, without anybody picking it up. And I think a lot of it had to do with I was smart enough to do well enough to look like I was doing about as well as somebody who puts in that kind of effort. I mean, as a younger person, um, I was distracted a lot. Um, I was a typical ADD type child. Um, I was focused on, on, on sports and other things. And you know, I was the classic class disruptor and things like that. And I don't think that anybody really appreciated that I was struggling. Uh, but, I, you know, when I look back on my life, I was like, wow, I really did have this problem of reading and it was tough. So I still wanted to be a doctor. And so I went and um, took some of my money, which was limited at the time, and um, went into this program where they taught me how to read Um for somebody with my type of reading disability. And it really involved understanding certain things about me, like I'm never going to be able to cram. So I needed to study, you know, more slowly. I wasn't going to ever be able to be a a page turner with reading books. Um, They taught me how to use a pen or a pencil to read sentences and break them down and, and to read multiple times. And a lot of things that just helped me comprehend and process the information I was reading. So, As a result of my reading disability, I got extra time to take the third medical college admissions test, and I absolutely crushed it. I mean, I knocked this thing out of the world, and um, I always joke, uh, by that time, my third time taking the uh, MCAT, the medical college admissions test, and all the hours I had spent at the study center, Stanley Kaplan, uh, I'd seen every question by the time I took that final test, and so... Anyway, I did really well, and I did so well that I thought, well, that's it. I'm going to get into medical school. So this is my third attempt to get into medical school, and I, I didn't even get an interview. So I started to realize that I not only had to get a better MCAT score, I needed to get my grades back up. And so I decided to move back in with my parents, and so I went back to uh, Northern Virginia. I stayed at my parents' house. I got into the American University, and I uh, did a, a master's degree on developmental biology. And at the time, I met a researcher who I explained my entire situation. That I was trying to get into medical school and everything. And, and this woman, Dr. Mira Jung, uh, was really an incredible lady. And uh, she had a stipend for me. She brought me in and... Um, I went back to uh, graduate school. I, I went through my first year and got straight A's, applied to medical school for the fourth time, and I still didn't get in. And then um, I got straight A's the second year of grad, grad school, and then I applied the fifth time. And I can tell you that was probably the most stressful year of my life. I had everybody who ever knew me 
um, telling me that uh, maybe I um, should give it up. Maybe I should move on to something different. Um, it almost felt like to some people it was kind of like I was trying to get into the NBA. I mean, with this body, you know, I'm never going to be an NBA player. Uh, and I think a lot of people felt that way. In fact, my own father pulled me aside and, and said, listen, Scott, um, you know, if you don't become a doctor, we're still going to love you. And, you know, you don't have to do this for us. And I remember saying to him, Dad, this is not about you. This is inside me. This is what I want to be. And it's what I want to do. So I applied that fifth time and um, I got accepted to uh, St. Louis University, which was a fantastic medical school. Um, you know, when I look back on our training, especially compared to other programs and speaking with other doctors about what they went through, our program was really excellent in the way they presented information uh, and preparing you uh, to be a doctor. Now, I show up to medical school, and I, I believe that all of these people, because I've been trying so hard to get into this club – I'm believing that all of these people are the greatest people that I've ever seen in the history of the world. And when I got there, I realized they were just people. Um, some were great. Some were not so great. Uh, Character-wise, same thing. And that's really an important life lesson is that no matter what swath of people you take, you're going to get the gamut of different types of characters. They're going to be good ones, bad ones, smart ones, not so smart ones, um, generous ones, not so generous ones, and all the rest. And the other thing when I got to medical school was when I took my MCAT, I got extra time, and I was afraid there was going to be an asterisk next to my name. Now, I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon and a sports medicine doctor, and in order to get into orthopedics, it's very competitive, and you have to graduate at the top of your medical school class in order to, to be selected. And I was really worried about that. I mean, academics was not my strong suit, and, uh, you know, I had this reading disability. And I remember they gave me an option about – um, whether or not I could get extra time to take my tests, you know, the standardized test that we took uh, every year um, and also the test that we took in the classes. And I remember thinking to myself that if I take that extra time, there may be an asterisk next to my scores. And if there is an asterisk next to my scores, it may prevent orthopedic programs from selecting me. And so I, um, I elected not to get extra time uh, and I understood one thing, I cannot cram, meaning we used to have exams that would go every six weeks. So you get all of your classes, you'd go for six weeks. Then on that sixth week, you would take that entire week and get tested in all of your classes. Then you would go another six weeks. Then that following week, you would have all of your classes, you would have exams for that following week. So it's kind of like six weeks, exam weeks, six weeks, exam weeks for the first two years and it was absolutely a miserable horrible nightmarish experience i woke up at 7 a.m every morning regimented i read for one hour from seven to eight i went to class class was usually from eight to five i went to the gym from uh you know probably eight thirty or from five thirty to six thirty came home the first thing i did every time was open up all my books on the desk i ate dinner gave my wife a kiss and then I went and I studied, and I had a rule for myself that I never 
would would blow off the night of studying without sitting down and reading for five minutes. That was my rule to myself. I'm going to sit down and read for five minutes. And in the first two years of medical school, I studied between four hours and eight hours or more every single day except for 12 days in two years. And not, you know, easy reading. These were not comic books. These were medical textbooks. And, you know, it was tough. I'm not going to say that, but I enjoyed it because God was pointing me in a direction I wanted to go. I enjoyed learning about the human body. I enjoyed medicine. And I also understood something else. All those five years I was trying to apply to medical school and I, you know, had thoughts of, you know, God's forsaken me and why why are all these bad things happening to me and my life's not working out the way I wanted to and you know, when I think about at that time of my life, my soccer career fell through. I mean, it was very successful in my rugby career. Um, we actually won the national championship back in 1988 at UC Berkeley. I'm very proud of that. Um, but I had had a lot of failure along that time. And um, all of a sudden, I get to medical school, and I'm, I realize I don't have the luxury of wasting any time. And so... We would have an exam set Monday through Friday. I would take that Saturday off. Those were the 12 days, that one Saturday. And then that Sunday, I would immediately be back to studying my four to eight hours a day every single day. Now, nobody else did that, or I should say very few other people in medical school did that. They took time to take a break. And most people would kind of cruise those first three weeks and then try to do it in the last three weeks before the exam set. Now, when I took my exams in all these different classes, anatomy, physiology, pathology, um, gosh, I can't remember, nutrition and microbiology and pharmacology and biochemistry and, you know, all these different things that we studied. Um, I would always get an A and I usually got the lowest A in every class, but in the end I got an A and there were lots of people in medical school, you know, we had a hundred or yeah, 152 students, 154 students, something like that. A lot of kids would pick one class that they wanted to get an A, and so they'd really put their efforts into it, and then they would blow off other classes. And I remember thinking, I need to get an A in every class. It's tough because I'm competing um, with other people who are really putting their time into just one class, whereas I have to get an A in every class. I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about that and how it relates to what we're talking about when I come back. From this short break, you're listening to The Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on The Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four 
patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio. And today we were talking about serendipity, and I'm trying to relate that to the doctor-patient relationship and free market medicine. And as part of my story, I was talking about the fact that I'm a unique individual, that I have a unique perspective, and I bring certain things to the table that make my doctor-patient relationship with my patients a unique experience and that I bring things to the table that no other person can bring and that other doctors bring things to the table that I can't bring and why it's so important for you to maintain your ability and your control over your own health care so that you can choose the doctor that's right for you. Now, part of my story entails my reading disability and the fact that I applied to medical school five times before getting accepted. And I'm to the point now where I've taken the medical college admission test three times. I finally got, um, I went back to graduate school to get a master's degree in developmental biology. I'm now in medical school and we're starting to um, go through the courses. Now, as I was saying, we had six weeks of exams followed by one week of exams in every class and then another six weeks. So we used to have these exam sets every six weeks, and they were incredibly uh, pressure-filled. And I, you know, I felt like my life was on the line every time we went through these things. But one of the things I realized was because I had this reading disability, I never crammed. I always studied, meaning we had the exam sets for a week. I took that one Saturday off, and then that Sunday I was right back to studying as hard as I could, the same as I would be studying at the end. And most students didn't do that. And what I found was medical information is difficult for anybody to read. It doesn't matter how great of a reader you are. It's still you have to read it relatively slowly in order to process everything and understand it. So in a way, the difficulty of the reading material slowed all the people who could read fast down a bit. The other thing was I studied more, more consistency, more consistently and more slowly. And so as a result, that information got into my head. And I struggled in the beginning. That first out of the blocks, you know, getting an A on every test was really difficult, but I managed to do it. I got an A in every class except neurobiology. I didn't understand how they asked the questions. They had one 50-point question at the end. I got the answer right, but I drew the picture they wanted improperly because I hadn't been in neurobiology long enough to understand there were certain ways they wanted it. Anyway, I missed that 50 points. Had I gotten that one question correct, uh, I might have moved up a couple of people. I graduated fourth in my medical school class. I could have graduated third or maybe even second if it wasn't for that one question. But, hey, who's complaining? Um, So anyway, I start to realize that um, as I work hard, um, I'm I'm doing well. It's really difficult. And then as time goes on, I start to realize because of my maturity, because I'm five years older than other students, I was able to stay disciplined. Whereas younger students who had gone straight through high school and then through college and then directly into medical school, 
they hadn't had a lot of other experiences in life and they were starting to feel like they're missing out. And it became harder for those students to sustain. And, and medical school is like a marathon. As time goes on, people just start to fall off because they don't have the ability to stay consistent. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, all that time I thought that God was forsaking me, that you know, I, I took me five tries to get into medical school. It was actually a blessing because during that five years, I got to play rugby and do a lot of things that young people do that I never would have gotten to do otherwise. And so by the time I showed up to medical school, I had had all that stuff out of my system and I was committed to becoming a doctor. And it didn't matter how much work it was. It didn't matter what I was missing. I didn't feel that. The other thing was in that first year, when you learn anatomy and physiology well, you have a great base for now studying pathology. Whereas other students who kind of were, you know, had smart and were well good at taking tests, a lot of the stuff that they had crammed for the original test in anatomy and physiology, they'd forgotten, making pathology a little bit more difficult. And over time, it gave me a competitive advantage. By the time we got into the third year of medical school, which is on the floors, so you're actually taking all that book knowledge and now you're interacting with patients and um, if you ever saw the TV show ER, you know, you're, you're out there interacting with patients and you got your mentors that are, we call it pimping. They're asking you questions all the time. I was very good at that. I had a very good base of knowledge and I was commonly referred to as Rain Man after the Dustin Hoffman character in Rain Man because I had all of these medical facts at my fingertips and um, and as a consequence, as a result of that, I did very well in my third and fourth years. And so I ended up graduating fourth in my medical school class. And I can remember the day of my graduation, um, walking across that stage and they said, Scott Barber, magna cum laude. And I could hear my father in a crowd burst out crying into tears. And it was the proudest moment of my life. And I try to convey that to my own children who are really not interested in hearing about my life right now, which is they're 13 and 15, which is fine. But it was really important to me because I knew my dad was so proud of me. And I was proud of myself, too. Now, listen, this episode and me sharing this story for you is not about, um, you know, gee, look what I did. It's about I'm not a perfect person and my life didn't unfold perfectly the way I wanted to. uh, But I had a calling and I did what I needed to do to get where I was going because God had a plan for me. And and as a result of things that I didn't anticipate, of a path I didn't expect and I didn't plan, one might call it serendipity, I ended up being the best doctor that I could be, which I think is a pretty good doctor. Um, I did well on all of my standardized tests. So I even without the extra time, I always got, um, you know, 90th percentile or right around there or higher. Um, And, uh, you know, I've been practicing 20 years and I'm good at what I do. And, um, you know, when I went through my residency and again, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. It's just I'm trying to make a point. Um, It was very common for my mentors when I was going through residency to say I had the best hands of anybody they'd ever seen, meaning whatever it is that you do when you operate, I just have it. And then when I did my fellowship in sports medicine, my fellowship director told me that I was the best fellow we ever had. Again, I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm beyond the, that. I'm, at my age, I realize the only person who really cares about what I've accomplished is my mom. Um, but uh, 
the important thing is to understand the serendipity of it all. Um, when I was doing my fellowship, you know, my fellowship director would let me do ACLs and things like that. And the other workers would say to me, you know, he's never let any other fellow do that, meaning he had a lot of trust for me. And, um, and so that serendipity allowed me to become the best doctor that I can be. Now, that journey and that experience um, made me the doctor that I am, and it influences the way I interact with my patients. Now, I know I've told the story about the cancer doctor and death and dying, and um, I, I, it really is an amazing story to me. Every time I think of it, I get goose flesh. This is a cancer doctor. There was a, uh, We used to have a class in medical school called Death and Dying where we would hear stories from people who experienced um, either they were facing a life-threatening illness or they had experienced uh, family members or loved ones that went through a life-threatening experience and many of them died and they would share that whole experience with us and it was really a very powerful class. Most people were crying and bawling at the end and this one in particular was one of the most brutal. This father got up and he spoke of his son, um, how his son developed this cancer and how they battled this cancer and how the the son going through the cancer affected his relationship with the other children because the son with the cancer got um, you know extra uh, attention in the home, understandably so, and um, and then he talked about one of the final conversations with that he had with his son about his son, you know, knowing he's never going to have sex and wanting to know what that's about. And I, he said he, he shared some of these things and he gets to the end. And then there was some stuff my son talked about that's just for me and him and I'm not going to share it. And his son died at the age of 10. And I mean, at this point, I'm, I'm really starting to tear up in goose flesh right now when I think about it. It was such a brutal story. Uh, the son dies and the doctor who took him through this whole thing is sitting there watching him uh, give his testimony at this death and dying class and uh, throughout the course of him telling this story he talked about how his son liked frogs and that was kind of an underlying thing how his son liked to go play with frogs and catch frogs and and put frogs in a little terrarium and things like that and as the father's telling the story about his son died and time went on he said he started to feel like he was forgetting his son and that really hurt him hurt his soul and he reached out to the doctor and he said, I'm forgetting your son. The doctor went and bought a tie with a Norman Rockwell type image. For those of you who don't know who Norman Rockwell was, American artist that used to do this unique kind of art, uh, very Americana kind of a guy. Anyway, he did this picture of a ten, you know, what looked like a 10-year-old boy in overalls holding a frog. It was a tie. And he went to the father's office where he worked, and he left the tie there with a note that said, I will never forget your son. And I, I'm i actually having a hard time even saying that without breaking down crying. When he said that in this auditorium of, you know, almost 200 people, I mean, it was open bawling and crying. I mean, it would, me included. I mean, people's faces were just soaking wet. It was so brutal. And I just remember thinking that doctor his ability to carry that family through that experience and to be there for the father. And then even, you know, I can't remember if it was a year or six months or whatever, after the son dies, he's still there treating the family, treating the doctor. And I remember thinking what a special person that, that doctor was and that that doctor's not me. I couldn't do that. You know, when I talk to people about why I became an orthopedic surgeon, I mean, a lot of it is I don't have, whatever that is, whatever it takes to take people through these really 
horrible experiences in life because I get too emotionally connected. And, you know, in orthopedic surgery, I kind of always joke, you know, usually the worst thing I have to tell people is, you know, they can't run as much or whatever. And fortunately, nowadays in orthopedics, our, uh, you know, our practice, we're able to solve people's problems. I'm, I'm almost always able to restore function and to, you know, give people back a little of something they've lost, which is good for my own psyche. But it is so important to have that doctor in this world. And there are so many others. I mean, there's so many other situations in medicine that require all of these different perspectives and these smart people. And, you know, it's also why medicine and science is never settled. It's why there always has to be open debate and open conversation about medicine. There is no right answer. There's just different answers. And different answers are different for different people based on their values and based how they see the world and based on their own risk tolerances. And that only happens in a free market healthcare solution, in a socialized medicine situation, in a one size fits all uh, medicine situation. You don't you don't get that. You don't get any nuance. And you know, I started thinking about some anecdotal stories from my own career to kind of make this point. Uh, more powerful and you know one of the things that I really think is is one of the coolest things I've ever seen is the the pitcher for the Boston Red Sox Kurt Schilling and a lot of you will remember the World Series with the bloody sock you know Kurt Schilling was a pitcher and and he's out there pitching and uh, you know the the red I don't even remember who they were playing but you know he basically wins the World Series and he's got this injury to his ankle and over the course of the game, you know, his blood is showing through on the sock and, you know, the TV cameras are focusing in on his right ankle and there's the big round bloody thing and he's just fighting through it. And I just remember thinking to myself, his orthopedic surgeon was a genius. So what Kurt Schilling had was uh, what we call dislocating perineal tendons. You have these two tendons that go on the outside of your ankle. And when you push off, the sheath that holds them behind that ankle can sometimes be torn in people. And so what happens is as you push off with your ankle, those tendons pop around the outside part of your ankle bone called the lateral malleolus. It's very painful. And so what this doctor did was he anesthetized the tissue. The way we would treat this surgically, let me back up a little bit. So if somebody has this problem of dislocating perineal tendons, uh, we would do a surgery. We'd make an incision back there. We'd um, go in. We'd take those tendons and kind of put them back behind the the lateral malleolus or behind that ankle bone. Uh, sometimes we'll use a burr and kind of create a little bit of a better trough to get them back there. And then we take that that we call it a retinaculum. We take that connective tissue that's designed to hold those tendons behind the ankle bone, and we reattach them to the bone. Now. To recover from that surgery takes about three months. And then, you know, to be able to get back to uh, major league pitching, uh, you know, would be, you know, six months to a year. Well, obviously, he's in the middle of the World Series. We don't have this kind of time. What do we do? So what the doctor does is he anesthetizes the ankle with some local anesthetic, and he just takes suture and goes through the skin and and basically almost kind of temporarily repairs those that retinaculum to keep those tendons uh, behind the ankle bone and allowed Kurt Schilling to to complete that game. And I remember thinking to myself, what a genius, um, what a genius technique. 
I'd never heard it before. And listen, at the time that that was going on, I was already an experienced orthopedic surgeon. And I remember thinking to myself, second opinions. I don't know that I would have come up with that at that time when I, uh, if Kurt had come to see me, I don't know if I would have been able to come up with that. And that is the beauty of medicine and the doctor-patient relationship and why the science is never settled. There's no randomized controlled prospective studies on doing that. This doctor just took his experience, and I, I don't know if it was a he or she, but they took their experience, their knowledge, their skill. They had a conversation, I'm sure, with Kurt Schilling. What are the long-term ramifications of doing this? I don't think much. Um, and they came up with a plan, and they solved his unique problem and may never come up again. You know what I mean? Somebody in the middle of the World Series, I got a pitch. And this doctor solves this problem. It's unbelievable to me. And I don't mean to be a homer about medicine, but I just think it is so cool. And in a socialized medicine, one-size-fits-all, government-controlled healthcare plan, that would never work. There's no diagnosis code for that. There's no procedure code for that. That was just a doctor understanding how the body works, understanding what's possible and thinking and experience. I mean, it's just such a fabulous explanation or demonstration of the practice of medicine, which is not written down in a book. Not everything we do in medicine is written down in a book. There's no group of people who can talk to that doctor. I mean, if you'd have told me about that beforehand, and not in the context of a World Series pitcher, I don't know if I would have thought it could even work. Uh, but somebody had the courage to go out and do it and do it effectively. Kurt Schilling managed to pitch and win the World Series. So obviously it was incredibly effective. But it's important. Now, in my own experience, I always talk about when I first got out of my training, um, I didn't really understand insurance companies. Most doctors have no idea how these insurance companies work. I would tell you the insurance companies take full advantage of that. Uh, to try and avoid payment. We can get into that on other shows. Uh, but I remember I had an 80-year-old lady, 80, and she was a barefoot water skier, uh, and she tore her anterior cruciate ligament. Now, that's kind of weird. Like, until I saw this lady, I would not have thought it was possible for an 80-year-old lady to water ski, let alone barefoot water ski, but there she was. Now, she came into my office, and I evaluated her and everything, and she had no arthritis in her knee, but she had an unstable knee and she was unable to water ski. And so I recommended an ACL reconstruction. Now, it's unusual, I admit. There are not a lot of 80-year-olds who benefit from an anterior cruciate ligament reconstruction. But in this particular case, given her set of circumstances, it was the right call. Now, guess what? The insurance company wouldn't let her do it. And I know you guys are saying that, well, the insurance company's free market medicine. No, it's not. There's so much government penetration and control of our healthcare system that it allows the insurance companies to have much more leverage than they should have. And it also allows them to limit the type of care that we can produce. So the limitations that are placed on our current health insurance system is directly related to the massive control that the government has through Medicare and Medicaid. So this is an example of socialized medicine where you're limiting the ability of doctors and patients to make their own decisions about their health care. And so anyway, I tried to perform an anterior cruciate ligament reconstruction. They said they wouldn't um, and uh, that I could do a knee replacement. Well, this lady didn't need a knee replacement. She needed an ACL reconstruction. And so I did what I normally do. I did the right thing for the patient. 
and uh, I did the ACL reconstruction. The insurance company uh, refused to pay. I can't really remember what happened with the patient's issues, but uh, I think I just ate it, and I'm ha- I would do it again. Uh, but it was a good example to me of when you have a unique medical situation, there are a bunch of different opinions out there. And again, many medical decisions are not right or wrong. They're different. It's risk assessment. Um, and so this this lady ended up getting her ACL reconstruction. And as I recall, she got back to barefoot water skiing. Now, the doctor-patient relationship. Um, I remember when I was in medical school, or not medical school, I was in residency, and I still had the images of this class of death and dying and these great doctors with this compassion and, you know, this ability to take people through these horrible situations. And a lot of the lessons from that class were about just listening and just being there and just touching and not taking away hope. And and I've taken that those lessons with me through my entire career. I try to understand these things. And I remember uh, when I was in residency, I was on call one night and we used to get calls all the time about kids who get meningococcemia, uh, which is uh, a bacterial infection that can sometimes cause blood clots that go to your, uh, go to your, your limbs and it can cut off the blood supply. Kids will get dysvascular limbs, like, I mean, horrible, like you might lose your entire arm, a finger, a leg. And so we were constantly being consulted as orthopedic surgeons to come in and look at patients who were suffering from meningococcema. And sometimes we would inject a thing called white ace, which was a, a, a medicine designed to, to break down clots. Uh, it wasn't super effective, but we would do it all the time. And, um, Anyway, I get called. I go over to the pediatric wing of the hospital. I go into this girl's room, and I remember she's sitting there in a white nightgown. She had a big, white, fluffy, stuffed teddy bear. And uh, I pulled back the blanket on her legs, and from about mid-shin down to her feet, where they were mummified. I mean, the legs were already dead in what we call dry gangrene. They were all shriveled up just like a mummy. So... They were going to need, they, if you do nothing, they eventually your legs just fall off. But normally we would go in and do a formal amputation. And, and um, anyway, I walked in and she looked up at me. She was probably about 11 years old. And uh, she looked up at me and she said, um, are my legs going to be okay? And me being me and not having the capacity, the experience that, you know, whatever God gives those beautiful doctors, those amazing doctors who have that talent, I don't have it. I didn't know what to do, and I remember I just got in the bed. We were watching TV. I just got in the bed. I put my arm around her, and we just sat there and watched TV for a few hours, and we didn't talk. And I remember um, I remember just sitting there. I have no words. I don't know what to say, and I just kept saying, well, don't take away her hope. And I remember thinking, well, how do you not take away hope if I say her legs need to be amputated? So let's just say nothing. And I believe God did something to warm her heart. She seemed content, and he also bailed me out. She didn't persist in asking questions. Maybe she knew, and we were done. But to me, I always think about that moment. That was that was a doctor-patient relationship. That was just me having my own unique experiences and all that and caring and being in a situation and and doing what I thought I should do. And 
not really having a textbook to go to, not really having been trained, hey, when you go see an 11-year-old with mummified legs, this is how you handle it. I didn't have that. I just made it up as I went along, which is what a lot of doctors do when we are trying to figure out how to save patients. And the thing about private healthcare is when you have a doctor that goes to medical school and learns things, we don't learn everything. We learn a lot of stuff, but we don't learn everything. And then you take that and you go and you practice medicine and you take information that's unique to your patients and then you take on your knowledge base and it grows. And the thing about doctors is they get off the textbooks at some point. And what I mean is at some point you become more expert as a practicing physician than a textbook. So I go read things about what I do every day and I'm beyond that. I know more than those textbooks because I do this every day and I've been doing it for 20 years. I've been in medicine for almost 30 years. And when a bureaucracy comes in and starts to try and take over healthcare, they don't know what I know. They don't have the experiences I have, nor do they have the knowledge or the experiences of the, you know, all the doctors in the world that are out there doing what they do. None of them having the right answers. They have different answers. Sometimes they have the same. Sometimes we have consensus. But a lot of times we disagree. And the way we get to um, a better choice is sometimes we have conferences and we talk about things and we discuss and we arrive. Knowledgeable people, people who have experience, not bureaucrats. Not people who are like, oh, I'm appointed. You know, when I first got into medicine, we used to have these the HMO system that talked about gatekeepers, right? And this was kind of a, an insurance company's brilliant idea to limit healthcare was you go to your primary care doctor, your primary care doctor gives you the once over, and then they decide if you need to go to a specialist. Well, guess what is true about primary care doctors? They don't have enough knowledge to be gatekeepers to specialists because they just don't. A primary care doctor has no idea what I do. And I don't mean to be belittling primary care doctors. I'm just saying nobody could. If I was a doctor like that, I wouldn't know either. I don't know what's available in ENT. I don't know what's available in cancer surgeries in a lot of cases. I don't know, you know what plastic surgeons can do. I just know that, that the bureaucracy can't possibly gatekeep for those people. And that's why you need to maintain control of your own health care. And you need to be able to choose the doctors that work for you. Because when you have an issue and you start studying your issue and you start learning about your issue, nobody's going to know it better than you. Now, today is Veterans Day. I would be remiss if I got out of here without thanking all of those veterans. Um, they've had a huge impact on my life. My father is buried with full military uh, full military honors in Arlington Cemetery for his service uh, in, the, in the Navy. He was a veteran of the Vietnam War. Dad, I love you. I'm thinking about you. Um, God bless all the rest of you veterans. I hope today was a useful show. Thanks for bearing with me. I was doing it on the fly. We will catch you next time on The Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.